You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. This podcast is brought to you by TranquilityRetreat.com. Welcome to Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Uricu. And today we're going to discuss uh, another uh, attempt to base morality, but this time on religion. Well, let's start with the usual premise that people say, if it weren't for religion, what kind of people would we be? We'd be degraded, we'd be animalistic. And let's just challenge that, since we're talking about philosophy, from philosophy itself. Let's bring up the example of Aristotle. Not being a believer, his son asked him one day, how can I be a good human person? And the result of that was Aristotle's so-called Nicomachean Ethics that he wrote to his son Nicomachus, telling him how to be a good person, how to strive for happiness, how to be virtuous, how to live a good moral life, and nowhere is religion mentioned. Yeah, it's a very secular approach to ethics, but I can imagine uh, critics of that saying, well, the only reason such a secular approach to ethics is possible is because there is an originator of morality in a general sense, which is God. In other words, maybe you don't need to subscribe to a particular religion to be a moral person or to understand ethics, but if it weren't for God, there wouldn't be any concept at all of ethics. Ethics, as a part of the world we live in, wouldn't exist but for a divine uh, origin. Now, this I think sometimes is referred to as the divine command theory. The divine command theory. That that, uh, our notions of right and wrong come directly from commands of God. God commands that certain things are right, and that's why they are, and he commands that certain things are wrong, and that's why they are wrong. Yet, biologists for some time have been observing ethical behavior in animals. Um, watching chimpanzees defend one another, uh, watching dolphins uh, come to the rescue of uh, a member of the pod that, that has, that's having trouble breathing and, and raising that member up to the uh, surface so it can get air. Um, how whales will give their lives to defend their young. Um, these are all kinds of things, sharing, self-sacrifice, that we say could only come from God. But did God give them this tremendous moral instinct to animals too? Yeah, that raises a problem because uh, if he did, then you open up a whole can of worms about the, the idea that humans are supposed to be special and that they have uh, the ability to reason and the soul, and that's where we get our understanding of morality. And if you... You know, say, well, yeah, if God gave the animals those instincts as well, then that kind of evaporates that difference. On the other hand, of course, if the answer is no, then you're left with a more naturalistic explanation, which mm. actually there's a, a recent book published called Moral Minds by Mark Hauser that, that takes that approach. And there have been several others uh, that recently. That Daniel Dennett's work. Sure, mm. trying to show that there's a there's a way you can get from 
the natural world to a sense of ethics without anything supernatural. What Dennett refers to as skyhooks. You don't need any kind of artificial <laughs> right. uh, mechanisms to get there, any kind of supernatural mechanisms to get there. Well, maybe another approach would be to look at the morality of people who have religion and the morality of people who don't. Um, there is n no empirical evidence that non-believers commit crimes or other antisocial acts in a greater proportion to believers. The uh, Federal Bureau of Prisons just released some statistics, and 80% of the, the prison population in the United States is Christian, whereas 0.2% of the population is atheist. Now, I know a lot can say, well, obviously the clear majority of people in the United States are Christian, and atheists make up a mere 10% of the population, but there is a, a significant difference there. Yeah, because if, if uh, religion really were the basis of morality, you would expect atheists to be overrepresented in prison populations, mm -hmm. precisely because by that idea, they wouldn't have the same moral sensibilities as religious people would. And another study released recently shows that the, the incident of, incidence of uh, spouse abuse uh, increases greatly as the abuser becomes more religious um, and takes scriptural doctrines more literal. Now, you know, one response to that might be, well, they're not practicing their religion correctly. They're just nominally religious, which maybe still doesn't uh, refute the notion that the basis of morality, whether you choose to act morally or not, is some sort of uh, divine element. I'd like to read something from a a theologian named Ronald Sider in Christianity Today, an article recently published. He goes on to say, The findings in numerous national polls conducted by highly respected pollsters like the Gallup Organization and the Barna Group are simply shocking. Gallup and Barna hand us survey after survey demonstrating that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered and sexually immoral as the entire world in general. In fact, divorce is more common among born-again Christians than in the general American population. Only 6% of evangelicals tithe, and white evangelicals are the most likely people to object to neighbors of another race. McDowell has pointed out that the sexual promiscuity of evangelical youth is only a little less outrageous than that of their non-evangelical peers. So, we have to ask, is possession of a religion or belief in a god an indicator of a superior morality? Statistics don't seem to bear out that claim. Yeah, that's going to come as a shocking revelation to quite a lot of people, because I, th I think a lot of people operate on the assumption that religion, at the very least, is a way of bringing morality into expression, mm -hmm. if not actually being the origin of course, one of the problems with with the question about whether religion is the origin of morality is if, if you're going to take that line of thinking, then you have to answer the question, which one? I mean, there mm -hmm. literally, even if you just count the major religions, there are, are easily a dozen around the world. Which one of those is the right one? If you've decided that the one you practice is the right one, which is what most people usually do, mm -hmm. 
then you've got to ask the question at one level remove, which is, well, what about denominations? You just say, well, Christianity is the right religion. Okay, which of the hundred, literally hundreds of denominations and sub-denominations? That, that seems no. to me to spell a, a large problem with the claim that any particular religion is the basis of morality. Well, let's take one religion. Let's take um, the Roman Catholic form. Now, a lot of people would agree that Hitler, Adolf Hitler, is probably one of the most vile persons in the history of the human race. But Hitler was a believing Christian, a Catholic, albeit not terribly practicing, but the Catholic Church never excommunicated him. In fact, a mass was said for his soul upon his death. There are several mentions of Catholicism and Christianity in his book Mein Kampf. He mentions Jesus' actions in the temple and refers explicitly to the whip Jesus used to drive the money changers out of the temple. That was the kind of Christianity Hitler admired. He goes on to say in Mein Kampf that he admires Jesus as a forceful moral model. Now, this seems to be a, t- a terrible contradiction, but Hitler used the um, the example of Jesus driving the moneylenders out of the temple as an example of what an ideal Christian society should do to drive Jews out of Europe. Now, how can one sit easily with that? Well, perhaps one way uh, you could try to weasel out of that is to say, well, okay, that was Hitler's interpretation of Christianity, which was, of course, wrong. Uh, A more correct interpretation wouldn't have come to the same conclusions about how to act. Of course, that gets us right back to the question of interpretation. Um, If you're going to say that something is right or wrong because uh, of a particular religion, you've got to be able to decide which is the correct interpretation, and that's not uh, entirely easy to do. Yesterday I saw a news item, an interview with a, a political candidate, in Sierra Leone, and she was lamenting the fact this, that she did not think she would be electable if she ever came out against the practice of female genital mutilation, because 90% of the population consider it a religious duty to mutilate their daughters genitally. Now, can we say that religion is having a, an uplifting effect on society in Sierra Leone? And while we're on the same vein, what about, in Muslim countries, the condoning of what is called honor killing? By any standards, honor killing seems to be one of the most vile practices that can be perpetrated on a woman in Muslim countries, even for speaking to a man who is not related. We're, a lot of us are familiar with, 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 the, with the code, but um, a man is driven to kill his own daughter upon learning that she's been raped. And the male relatives must take up this duty if the father can't do it. And this is a common practice, and this is done in the name of religion. Yeah, and the more of these examples we, we see and we hear about, it becomes more difficult to simply say that they're aberrations of a religious practice. I mean, you can only make the argument so far that, well, those people are just practicing the religion wrongly, because if those people are... In the majority, like you mentioned, in Sierra Leone, ninety percent. So, that that 
it's pretty difficult to suppose that they're just all aberrant. Uh, you can make the same case with, with many other religious examples. Maybe that's not the aberration. Maybe that's the norm. That's, of course, going to be very disturbing for some people to um, to reckon with. The, um, the horrible example that comes to mind to me is, is the example from Rwanda in 1994. Tutsis, who were mostly Catholics, killed Hutus, who were not. And the head of the Roman Catholic Church did not condemn that action, but appealed to the Rwanda authorities for amnesty for the killers. Um, I, I just see that as contradictory. Um, could we have had could we have had so much slavery in American history and, in fact, world history were it not for passages in the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures that seem to legitimate slavery? I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And uh, maybe as a way of discussing that, we can uh, take a break and then listen to the thoughts of Richard Dawkins on that exact question. And um, then we can uh, sort of pick up the conversation after that, and if you think what we've said so far has been fairly controversial and disturbing, hang on because it's going to get worse. Do you like science? How about general knowledge and trivia? If you do, then the Brains Matter podcast is the show for you. Brains Matter is a show about interesting topics from the world of knowledge, from science to philosophy from history to astronomy, together with interviews with various brainy people. So why not listen into the show, learn something new, and then share it with your mates? So come and join the ordinary guy and subscribe to the Brains Matter podcast today. Follow the instructions at the website www.brainsmatter.com. That's www.brainsmatter.com. Come and join in the learning. And not to mention the fun. Okay, to pick up on the conversation we had before the break, let's listen to a little excerpt from Richard Dawkins' documentary, The Root of All Evil, discussing uh, the attempt to base morality on scriptures. It's not so bad, surely, to believe in moral codes handed down to us from the good book. Doesn't the Bible give us a moral framework in which to live? Well, no, the holy texts are of dubious origin and veracity, and they're internally contradictory. And when we look closely, we find a system of morals which any civilized person today should surely find poisonous. The Old Testament is in every church and synagogue throughout the world, and is the root of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. your brother, the son of your father or of your mother, or your son or daughter, or the spouse whom you embrace, tries to secretly seduce you, saying, let us go and serve other gods. This is God's advice on what to do to a friend or family member who suggests you believe in another deity. 
you must kill him. Your hand must strike the first blow in putting him to death. You must stone him to death, since he has tried to divert you from Yahweh, your God. The God of the Old Testament has got to be the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, vindictive, unjust, unforgiving, racist, an ethnic cleanser urging his people on to acts of genocide. If God doesn't set a good moral example, who does? Abraham, the founding father of all three great monotheistic religions? The man who would willingly make a burnt offering of his son Isaac? Maybe not. How about Moses, he of the tablets which said, Thou shalt not kill? Well, the same man, it says in the book of Numbers, was incensed by the Israelites' merciful restraint towards the conquered Midianite people. He gave orders to kill all male prisoners and older women. But all the women children that have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive, alive for yourselves. How is this story of Moses morally distinguishable from Hitler's rape of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs? So let's leave Moses out of it. But there are lesser characters facing somewhat more everyday moral dilemmas. Maybe they provide a better role model. In the book of Judges, a priest was traveling with his wife in Gibeah. They spent the night in the house of an old man. But during supper, a mob came to demand that the host hand over his male guest. So that we may know him. Yes, in the biblical sense. Well, the old man replied, Nay, my brethren, nay, I pray you, do not so wickedly. Behold, here is my daughter, a maiden, and his concubine. Them I will bring out now, and humble ye them, and do with them what seemeth good unto you. But unto this man, do not so vile a thing. So, enjoy yourselves by raping and humiliating my daughter but show a proper respect for my guest, who is, after all, male. Whatever else this strange story might mean, it surely tells us something about the status of women in this religious society. Now, of course, nice Christians will be protesting. Everyone knows the Old Testament is deeply unpleasant. The New Testament of Jesus, they claim, undoes the damage and makes it all right. Yes, there's no doubt that from a moral point of view, Jesus is a huge improvement. Because Jesus, or whoever wrote his lines, was not content to derive his ethics from the scriptures with which he'd been brought up. But then, it all goes wrong. The heart of New Testament theology, invented after Jesus' death, is St. Paul's nasty sadomasochistic doctrine of atonement for original sin. The idea is that God had himself incarnated as a man, Jesus, in order that he should be hideously tortured and executed to redeem all our sins. Not just the original sin of Adam and Eve, future sins as well, whether we decide to commit them or not. If God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them? Who is God trying to impress? 
presumably himself since he is judge and jury, as well as execution victim. To cap it all, according to scientific views of prehistory, Adam, the supposed perpetrator of the original sin, never existed in the first place. An awkward fact, which undermines the premise of Paul's whole tortuously nasty theory. Oh, but of course, the story of Adam and Eve was only ever symbolic, wasn't it? Symbolic? So Jesus had himself tortured and executed for a symbolic sin by a non-existent individual. Nobody, not brought up in the faith, could reach any verdict other than barking mad. What many people don't understand in, in this horrible story from Judges is that, first of all, it is a take from a similar story in Genesis about Sodom and Gomorrah. And the issue is not homosexuality or sexuality in any way. The issue is the law of hospitality, the sacred desert law of hospitality. That's what's violated in Genesis, and that's what's violated in Judges. But the, the values that emanate from these stories are, are very significant. First, the absolute demeaning of women in this, for the sake of religion, to believe that a woman is only property. And that comes from not just the Hebrew Bible, but from the entire culture of the Middle East. Women are property. And the Bible reflects that in so many ways. And we see that in both the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures. So, is the Bible a foundation for morality? I'd like to tell a brief story, if I could, of an Israeli um, sociologist uh, named George Tamarin. He presented the story from the Bible to a number, to quite a few, a thousand Israeli schoolchildren between the ages of 8 and 14. He quoted from the Bible in the book of Joshua. Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. But all silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Then the people utterly destroyed all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and asses, with the edge of the sword. And they burned the city with fire, and everyone who was in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Now that's a horrible story, but Tamarin asks the children a simple moral question. Do you think Joshua and the Israelites acted rightly or not? They had to choose between A, total approval, B, partial approval, and C, total disapproval. The results were polarized. 66% gave total approval and 26 gave total disapproval, with fewer than 8% in the middle. Now, later he switched the stories. Instead of Joshua, he replaced his name with General Lin, and Israel was replaced by a Chinese kingdom 3,000 years ago. He told the same story. The results were startling. Only 7% approved of General Lin's behavior, and 75% disapproved. In other words, where the children's loyalty to Judaism was removed from the calculation, the majority of children agreed that this was a barbaric act of which they could not approve. It was religion that made all the difference.
Yeah, and there are uh, quite a lot of examples of that, uh, not simply in, in people's reaction to stories, but in real life. Take the example uh, that was for many years uh, the lead story almost every night on the news between North and South Ireland. Uh, the only difference between that, that group of people had nothing to do with culture, skin color, uh, socioeconomic status the only difference was religion the only difference Protestants right. versus Catholics mm-hmm. and if you had magically transported those people to another time and place uh, an entirely different culture but left the religion the same they would still have the same conflict mm-hmm. by the same token if you had transported the people to an entirely different time and place with the same economic circumstances geography and culture but made them the same religion, they would probably be very peaceable. Yeah. Many of us are mystified at how that conflict in the north of Ireland has gone on and festered for so many years. But few of us want to acknowledge that it lies in religion more than anything else. Leon Uris wrote a great novel called Trinity about that very same thing. And he had to conclude it was religion. That the same, these people share the same DNA, the same culture, but just religion drives them apart and makes them extremely immoral toward one another. A guy named Sam Harris, who teaches at Stanford University, uh, wrote in a book called The End of Faith. He wrote, uh, the danger of religious faith is that it allows otherwise normal human beings to reap the fruits of madness and consider them holy. Because each new generation of children is taught that religious propositions need not be justified in the way that all others must, Civilization is still besieged by the armies of the preposterous. We are, even now, killing ourselves over ancient literature. Who would have thought something so tragically absurd could be possible? And that could sum up the situation in Northern Ireland. In many ways, it could sum up the situation in in Iraq today. Now, um, I started with uh, a question that maybe had a distinction in it that we might want to play on in the last few minutes and see whether this will help or or hurt the situation. When I teach ethics and talk about this subject, I usually make a distinction between uh, religion being the basis of morality versus God being the basis of morality. And what I mean by that is some people might say, well, you, you can't pick any one religion as your source of morality. Uh, because those are all basically man-made or at least man-influenced institutions. But what's really going on is that if there weren't a divine being in the first place, there couldn't be any conversations about um, morality at all. And this is this is what is often referred to as the, the divine command theory, which mm-hmm. we talked about earlier, is the idea that the nature of right and wrong comes from God himself directly commanding that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Aristotle earlier, his teacher Plato recognized this theory and the problem with it and and I think kind of illustrated the problem nicely in a a dialogue called Euthyphro Yes, um, which we've actually uh, read before on the show Uh, if God is the source of moral principles then that means there are two possible uh, alternatives first God is speaking the principles and by merely speaking them, making them true principles. So the mere fact that God says, let's just pick an example, murder is immoral, Mm -hmm. that's what makes murder immoral. 
But if that's the case, then doesn't that make the nature of morality fairly arbitrary? Because in theory, at least, God could simply reverse himself, mm-hmm. and then murder would be moral. The only other option is that God is simply reporting about what is moral and immoral, which means that God himself is not the source of morality. There's mm-hmm. something else that's the source. So either either way you go, the divine command theory doesn't explain morality being based on God because either it is, which makes morality arbitrary, or it isn't because God is getting the moral principles from elsewhere. Yeah, it's, it was a, a beautiful insight that Plato had and it opened up a whole field of endeavor into the sources of morality. If human beings can discover morality, then what's the need of God? So, for example, the, uh, the issue of murder. Every single human society seems to find murder, unjustified killing of another human being, morally reprehensible and, and worthy of punishment, banishment, uh, execution of some sort. Uh, we saw that in the Code of Hammurabi thousands of years before the Ten Commandments were written. In fact, the Ten Commandments seem to be based in great part on them. So the Babylonians discovered that. They didn't need revelation from on high to do it. And so it seems like the interesting question we might want to take on uh, in our next broadcast is what accounts for this seemingly universal intuition if it's not culture, which we've already discussed, and it's not religion? So maybe we'll take that up in the next broadcast. That'll be a good topic. This podcast is proud to be a part of the Blueberry Network. Find freshly picked podcasts just for you at Blueberry.com. That's Blueberry, no ease, dot com.